We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. First Chronicles. I just want to see if you guys are awake. And my wife told me, she's all, make sure you use the microphone that you hold in your hand. She said, because I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. And this is the way it works. It's a scientific fact that if the guy walks around just a little bit, chances of you guys staying awake are, are just a little bit better. How many of you guys are getting uh, just, uh, you're getting like tempted, you're getting maybe uh, some spiritual opposition? You guys experiencing any of that? I think we are, you know. And uh, I was just thinking about today's study, how I think God wants to really minister to us and bring us to a point where, you know, we, we, you know, we wish kind of like it would go away, you know, but that's not going to happen, you guys. It's not going to happen until we're home. You know, until then, we have to kind of learn how to fight the good fight. And really, my prayer is that you guys would have that visual of getting out of Egypt and into the promised land. And then when you get into the promised land, that you would have all the land that God has for you. We're going to see that in today's study. Now, this is a very difficult section in First Chronicles. This is uh, flooded with a whole bunch of names that are very difficult to pronounce. I thought about maybe having Henry read the text for us, and then uh, we could go from there. But, um, you know, I don't think that's going to happen either. I'm not even going to read them. But what you are going to find, you guys, is tucked away in these genealogies are principles that we can take to heart You know, I always tell people, uh, methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. And that's what you want to get when you're reading the scriptures. You want to come away with the principles of what God's teaching you in order for us to fight this good fight. And so we read in 1 Chronicles uh, 5, uh, verses 1 through 10, it's the, the family of Reuben. Notice what it says right there in verse 1. It says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel... He was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph. Okay, so we're going to look at a, a lot of different genealogies here. We begin this time with the family of Reuben. And uh, what we find here in verses 1 through 3, 1 through 2, is a, is a pretty interesting principle given to us. Physically, uh, biologically, Reuben was actually the firstborn of Israel. He was born to his wife Leah, according to Genesis chapter 29, verse 32. You can read it there. But what happened was this, and you guys know that the firstborn was the one who got the, he got the double portion. The firstborn was the one who would receive the inheritance. The firstborn was the one that would receive the blessing, right? But what happened is Reuben forfeited that right because what happened, if you read in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, it said, when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it, and, and he didn't do anything. And so I don't know if you guys are tracking with me. I don't know if you can follow me, but basically 
Here you have a son who slept with his father's wife. So, you know, Jacob found out about it. Israel found out about the sexual sin. But he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything until years later. That happened in 1738 B.C. But what happened was later on, and you go down to Genesis chapter 49, it's 49 years later, and Jacob brings in all his sons, and he's going to speak over their lives, the prophecies and the blessings over their life, right? And if you read in Genesis 49, verse 3 through 4, this is what he said. He said, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. You shall not excel. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. The Bible says he went up to my couch. And so you think about that. You know, sometimes we think we get away with sin. We don't get away with sin, right? Reuben was, in a certain sense, restored as a patriarch. He was pardoned. He was a guy that was forgiven. But, oh, the consequences of forgiven sin. I mean, here it is, years later, we find out what happens. This guy right here is not going to receive the blessing of the firstborn. Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they get the blessing of the birthright, the double portion. And then Judah gets the inheritance that would be given to the responsibility of leadership. You guys, and, and for me, when I read this right here, you know, I don't know about you, but it strikes fear into my heart. It really does. You know, because I think sometimes we, we sin and we think we, we get away with it. And in all reality, we don't. And we look at lessons like this. 49 years later, God says, hey, I remember what you did. You know, what it makes me want to do is to live a holy life right here for the rest of my life. No more messing around with God. You know, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie. Uh, uh, what was it called? The Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory. I, I forgot the name of it. What was it called again? Willy Wonka and the child. Yeah, that's the one. And uh, anyways, I just remember there was a, a part of the movie, you guys remember, when he went, and I don't know exactly what happened, but he went wrong, and, and he was floating up in the air, and there were bubbles and all those types of things. And, and it seemed like no one found out, but then in the very end, remember what happened? He said, you messed up. I know all about it. You know? And, and so my encouragement to you is to look at this right here. Reuben was the firstborn. Look at verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed biologically, physically, actually the firstborn, but he did not get the blessings of the firstborn. Why? Because he went up and he slept with his dad's wife, his concubine. And so for me, for you, I pray it would strike that fear in our heart, God forgives us. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. But man, the consequences sometimes. We have to be so careful, you guys. You know, Ephraim and Manasseh, they received that right, that double portion that Reuben was to receive. And then later on, we see that Judah prevailed over his brothers. Notice it says that in verse 2, Judah prevailed, right? And from him, it says, came a ruler. Do you guys know who that is? That's David. And eventually, of course, that would be Jesus. And basically what we see is that Joseph and his sons were chosen by the father Israel as they looked back. But what we see is Judah was chosen by the father God as he looked forward to David and then eventually Jesus. 
You know, and as you read the Bible, it's interesting to me when you look at the different lists of the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and you see the way that they're, you know, listed, sometimes omitting the tribe of Dan or Ephraim or Levi because they were a priestly tribe. And, you know, you look at all these things, and it's interesting. The main point here, what we see in Chronicles, is that Reuben, because of his sin, he lost the blessing of the firstborn. You know, one of the things that's interesting here is that in this genealogy, verses 1 through 10 of Reuben, what we find is that uh, it traces uh, a thousand years. Again, Reuben was born approximately 1771 B.C., but then look at verse 6, if you would. It says, And Bera, his son, whom Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, carried into captivity, he was the leader of the Reubenites. And that's what we read in Second Kings 18, verse 12. It says, Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, it says, Then they would neither hear God nor do his commandments. And so, you know, it's interesting when you look at the, the, the 12 tribes. We actually have a map. I think we do. And I wanted to show you guys what was going on here. Can you see Reuben on the right side over there? And then you have Gad, and then you have Manasseh. Now, that's half the tribe of Manasseh. We also have Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan River. But here's a, a visual, and I don't know if you guys can really capture this, but... You see the Jordan River. In all reality, the children of Israel were supposed to go on the other side of the Jordan. They were supposed to cross over the Jordan. They were supposed to be on the east side. But what ended up happening was Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they saw the way that it was, uh, it was green, it was lush, it was nice looking for their, for their flocks. Um, have you guys ever heard that saying, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? That's exactly what happened. And I really believe that they entered into God's permissive will. God said, okay, I'll let you do it. I'll let you stay there. But that's not where you belong. You belong on the other side. And so rather than going on the other side with all the other tribes, they stayed on the west side of the Jordan. And what ended up happening was when Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and invaded the land, they were the first ones to be carried away. And there's a lesson for us, you guys. I don't know where you're at in your walk. I don't know where you are as far as the promised land goes, which side of the Jordan River you're on. The Jordan River is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, because when we come out of Egypt, we cross to the Red Sea, that's a picture of just water baptism, right? Getting saved, coming out of the world. But then what ends up happening a lot of times is people wander in the wilderness. For the children of Israel, it was 40 years. And sometimes for us, it's the same thing, you know. When God says, no, it's just an 11-day journey. It doesn't have to be that long. You can be a man of God. You can be a godly woman who fears the Lord, who loves the Lord, who God works in you, and God works through you. But you must be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You must be on the other side of the Jordan River because God wants us to experience victory. Victory in your prayer life. Victory in your quiet time. Victory over drugs. Victory over sex. Victory over your anger. Victory in your marriage with your children. In your interaction with your you know, friends or coworkers. With you know, the people that you drive on the freeway with. I mean, 
in every area of your life. God wants to use us to bring people into the kingdom. But a lot of times what ends up happening is we're not, we're not taking that step to be on the other side of the Jordan. Are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? I mean, are you walking in the power of God? You can always tell when you're not because you're failing. And you're like, oh, I am, but you're failing. I am, but you're, you know, you keep blowing it. There's no consistency. There's no stability in your life. Why? Because you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, when you read the Bible in Luke 24, 49, Jesus said, don't go anywhere. You tarry into Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. The same faith that saved you and you received the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 20, received the Holy Spirit and he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When God breathes on us, we're, we're given life as Christians. But now we need the power described in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when he said, you need that power from on high. And what ends up happening is God will come in and God and God will give you strength. You know, when I got saved, I got baptized with the Holy Spirit by God's grace. How could I stop cussing? How could I stop drinking? How could I stop all the addictions and the things that I was doing prior to being a Christian? I could not do that. I could never do that. I can't do it today on my own strength. It's got to be the Lord. And so what God was telling us, I think, and what God shows us, when we look at the children of Israel, we see these two and a half tribes on the wrong side of the Jordan, it's not just a geography lesson back in history. It's, a, it's for us today. It's saying, you know, Manny, I want you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you, Ephesians 5.18 says, to be filled with the Spirit under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what God wants for us. Because if not, we're going to end up sleeping with somebody. We're going to end up falling into sexual sin. We're going to end up falling into pornography. That's something that, you know, they say four out of every ten guys has an affair in their marriage. And guys that are pastors, guys that are godly, none of us are, are you know, not susceptible to that. And so what do we need to do? Uh, we need to just come to the Lord. We need to get on our face. We need to cry. We need to pray. We need to really, you know, just seek the Lord. We can't just play church. We need to walk in his strength. You see, and, and what we see right here, this whole thing is a principle for us. My prayer for you, it's not like I'm mad at you. You're like, oh, no, Manny's getting on, you know, the soapbox or whatever. You know, it's not that. It's just that we want the best for you. We want you to go to heaven when you die. We want you to experience heaven while you live. You don't have to live under the power of sin any longer. It should not have dominion over you because you are God's children. You're God's children, you see? And that's what we want. God says, saying, that's what, what I want for you. I want you to have joy for the journey. I want you to have peace for the path. I want you to have victory in every area of your life. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect because we're not going to be perfect until we go to heaven, but there should no, not be this consistent, persistent, insistent, resistant sin that continually occurs in our life. No, we have God living in us. And so we don't have to forfeit our birthright, you guys. We really, we really don't. We see in verse 9 that they settled as far as the entrance of the wilderness, this side of the river Euphrates. Why? Because their cattle 
had multiplied in the land of Gilead. And so they kind of settled on the wrong side of the Jordan, all because of their cows. <laughs> and so you guys be really careful. My encouragement to you is to enter in. And so we have some principles. Uh, uh, if you want to, I encourage you to go home and read all the names in these genealogies. I know every name was important to God. Um, but, you know, we talked about this last time that for the Jews, the genealogical records would be so important because it was there that they were able to prove their lineage, especially if you're a priest. You've got to have your ID, and this is kind of your, your ID. And so to them, Chronicles written from a priestly perspective, it would be very, very important to us. Maybe uh, not as important, but even within the genealogies, there are principles that we can take away. Next, in verses 11 through 22, we have the family of Gad. Now, again, if you look at the map, you'll see uh, Gad, uh, again, on the other side of the Jordan, and uh, they were a tribe of Israel as well. I was, uh, I was challenged. I was super blessed. Look at verse 18. It says, The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh had 44,000 760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war, who went to war. They made war with the Hagrites, Jeter, Naphish, and Noda, and they were helped against them, and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Then they took away their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, and 2,000 of their donkeys, also 100,000 of their men, for many fell dead. Why? Because the war was God's. I like that. And they dwelt in their place until the captivity. So sometimes people, when they're teaching through the Chronicles, they just skip over, over all that part, and they just zoom over to chapter 9, and, and that's okay. And we kind of are doing that. But there are some like little things within the genealogies that I think are really beneficial for us to cover. In verses 18 through 22, we read the details of the combined army of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And notice right there in verse 19, it says, they made war with the Hagrites. And so we're not 100% sure who the Hagrites are, but we're pretty sure. You guys know who they are? They're the Ishmaelites. Remember Abraham went into his concubine? Her name was Hagar. Now we have the Hagrites. They're the descendants of Hagar, they're the Ishmaelites. They're really a picture of the flesh. Because when Abar, Abraham had sexual relations with Hagar, it was a total work of the flesh. It's even described as a work of the flesh in the book of Galatians chapter 4 and chapter 5. So what is this war right here? This war is the war that we have against our flesh. That's what this is a picture of. And I'll be honest with you, the greatest enemy is me. I'm my greatest enemy. I blow it. Yeah, but, you know, your wife does this. Yeah, but just because she does that little thing doesn't mean you have to do that big thing. 
right? But we make excuses. And I know this, that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do a lot better. We'll, we'll do okay. We'll bring God glory. We'll finish the race if we can just have victory over me. I'm my worst enemy. And that's what this really is all about. You know, it's interesting in verse 18, you guys. Notice again, it says 44,760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and, and sword and to shoot with the bow, and they were skillful in war. Okay, they went to war, right? They went to war. But what's the re- real reason they won the war? What's the real reason they won the war? To me, it was fascinating you know, to see that the, the reason they won the war is because they, they cried out to God. Look at verse 20. And they were helped against them, and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, why? For they cried out to God in the battle. And he heeded their prayer. Why? Because they put their trust in him. Now, I don't know. I mean, you, you might even scratch your head and looking at that. And you're like, wait a minute, time out. God just told us about the, like the 47,000 guys that were really good fighters. You know, these guys could shoot. They could swing the sword. They could bear their shield. They were mighty men of valor. But then at the end of the day, when he says the war was won, he said the war was won not because of that. The war was won because they prayed and they cried out to God and they trusted him. And what I see here, I think for me anyways, is, you know, we have to do our part. You know, I need to study. I need to look up my cross references and check my, uh, you know, lexicon and read my commentary and read it in different translations. I want to try to do my best. But at the end of the day, the only way that God's going to give us the victory is if we're on our face, if when we're in prayer, if we're not not just in prayer, but, you know, here's the thing, and I'll share this with you guys. Uh, most people don't pray. You know, most people, they just, they don't even pray. I mean, they wake up and they have their Fruit Loops, and then they're out the door, man. You get my cup of coffee. Then, well, they pray three times a day, right before they eat breakfast, right before they eat lunch, and right before they have dinner. A lot of Christians, they don't have a solid prayer life. They don't have a place where they go alone. Like Jesus said, you go to your closet and you pray. A lot of Christians, they don't have that. Most Christians, they even say the average pastor prays about five minutes a day. So when I think about that, I think, okay, Lord, number one, we're not, we're not even praying. We're not even praying. But even if you did pray, let's just say you prayed 20 minutes. Let me ask you a question. Did you cry? Did you cry out to God? Because that's what they did here in verse 20. They were helped against them, and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle, and he heeded their prayer. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, Lord, you know, please bless this day, and you know what's going on, and here's my schedule, Lord, and... I bring the bulletin before you, Jesus. You see it, you know. And, you know, you kind of go through it. And, Lord, I just pray, you know, touch my wife and, and my daughter and my son. I lift them to you. I make mention of their name. And, you know, we can go through the prayer. And you might even go with 15, 20 minutes if you do that. 
But really, God's just looking and asking and wondering, are you crying when you pray? Do you ever, like, shed tears? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be tears, but, but he knows the difference between somebody who's just going through the motions and making mention of these things and someone who is crying. And I think that that's probably a lot, a lot of the reason why sometimes we have unnecessary struggles. And even as intercessors, we're not as powerful as we should be because we're, we're maybe we're praying, and if we are praying, maybe we're not crying. And I, want to, I just want to encourage you today that when you pray, you, you do it with passion. You know, and, and sometimes people make fun of Pentecostal people. They'll make fun of me right now. I can't believe Manny's walking around with the microphone, right? You know, and I don't know if this is Pentecostal. I don't think it is. But um, they make fun of people who pray with passion. You know, someone who prays and they lift up their hands. Someone who prays and maybe they, they raise their voice a little bit. You know, and I'm not saying you have to yell at God. I'm not saying that. You know, you know the difference, right? You know the difference that I'm talking about somebody who they, you know, they, they, they talk loud and they're kind of commanding God what to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about somebody who prays with passion. Lord, I lift up my son to you and I just pray, God, cover him from head to toe in Jesus' name to the deepest recesses of his heart, God. You have a calling on his life. Let that calling be true. I can go out into my garage and I can just, I can, I can pray out loud. And you may think that's weird, and that's okay. Maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. But I just know that I think, I, I really believe that times, and it, it, might, it might be even soft. I know some of you guys here, you, you pray soft. But it is a cry. I know it's a cry. That's all I'm saying is that, is it, is it with that type of heart? Sometimes you've got to raise the volume a little bit. You know, um, and you have to just get out of your pattern and you do it with heart. And when you pray, I think that you got to come to that place where it comes from the heart, where it's, it's a cry. Like even today, I don't know if you guys get the devotional sent to you in the email, but today's devotional, uh, six words stood out to me. This is what Elazar put in the devotional. Help me to pray in agony. Help me to pray in agony. When I read that from him this morning, it just resonated with my heart. I said, yes, Lord. Help me to pray in agony. Help us as a church, as your church, not just this church, the church, to cry when we pray. And that's what we see here. They prayed and they cried and when they prayed they not only cried they they trusted look again there at verse 20 and they were helped against them and the hagrites were delivered into their hand and all who were with them for they cried out to god in the battle he heeded their prayer notice because they put their trust in him you know, and that right there, it's like when I'm praying and I, and I might be worrying about my son or my daughter or my wife or whatever the, the case might be, my mom, the ministry, and so I'm praying and I'm crying, 
but I also have to be trusting. Lord, I, I, I trust you. I believe that this is in your hands. Psalm 20, verse 7 through 9 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. You see, we don't trust in horses. We don't trust in articulation. We don't trust in you know, manipulation or money or buildings. Our trust is in the Lord. And then he's the one that will build you up. He's the one that will give you the victory. He's the one. I mean, I, I do everything I can. I mean, I just do everything I can for my kids. But at the end of the day, that's, that's nothing compared to what they really need. They need God. They need the Lord. And our, my trust needs to be in him. One guy said this, all I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have, have not seen. And I look back and I see God's faithfulness over my life and why would He forsake me now? He's going to take care of me. And if God took care of me and He's taking care of me all my life, He's going to take care of my kids all their life. I look back and I see and so I look forward and I continue to trust. Dr. Dobson said this, trust involves letting go and knowing that God will catch you. You see, and that's, that's the hard part. You've got to let him go. And you've got to pray. You've got to trust. And I've shared this poem with you guys before, but I think it's something we need to really put up on the walls of our homes, man. It says this, Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him. He is ever faithful. Trust him for his will is best. Trust him for the heart of Jesus is the only place of rest. And I know about you, but I can identify with some of those things, you know, where, where you know you're going through a hard time and you're, having a, you're being oppressed by the enemy. And, you know, he just wants you to quit and split, but you have to trust him. Trust him when you, you know, sometimes I talk to people and they kind of don't want the will of God because they kind of know where it's leading. But you got to know that the Lord knows what's best. We have to trust him. I heard a story of a little girl who walked to and from school every day. Do you guys remember that? How many of you here when you were young you used to walk five miles in the snow to go to school like me? <laughs> no, nowadays nobody wants to walk anywhere, man. <laughs> I, gotta I need to drive over to Bank of America real quick. I'll be right back, you know. It's just crazy. When I was a kid, I used to walk to school, and I used to walk to uh, the bus stop. I was in fifth grade. I took RTD. But anyways, there was this little girl, and she, uh, she walked to school every day. And the weather one morning was questionable, and the clouds were forming. But she made her daily walk to her school. She was in elementary school. As the noon progressed, the winds began to blow along with the thunder, and then the lightning showed up. And so the mother of the little girl, she was concerned that her daughter would be frightened as she walked home from school. You know, she was afraid of the thunder. She was afraid of the lightning. And literally the electrical storm might harm her. So following the roar of thunder and lightning and a flaming sword, she thought it's going to cut her in the you know, life. And so the mom was concerned. She got into her car and she drove along the route to her child's uh, school 
And as she did, she saw her little girl walking along. But at each flash of lightning, the child would stop, look up, and smile. Another and another were to follow, and with each, the little girl would stop, look up, and smile. When Embedded's car finally drew up beside the child, she lowered the window and she carved to her and she said, what are you doing? <laughs> Why do you keep stopping? Why do you keep looking up at the lightning? Why do you keep smiling, right? And the, the little girl said, I'm, I'm trying to look pretty because God keeps taking my picture. <laughs> I like that, you know? And, and what's the lesson there? The lesson there is, you know, you think it's such a bad thing, such a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. What God is doing in your life, and you don't understand this or that or the other, it's a good thing. Why? Because we serve a good God. Because Romans 8.28 says that all things, all things, all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. So we can, even though it hurts, even though you don't understand, even though sometimes you wish it were different, you can trust God in those things because he's going to take those stumbling stones and he's going to make them stepping stones. He's going to take those tribulations and he's going to make them triumphs. That's the God that we serve. You see? And, and he answered their prayer and their cry because they totally trusted him. See? And we need to have the same heart. You know, when you look at these guys, and man, it's so cool to see the victory here at this juncture of their life. There was a time when they trusted. And so what ends up happening, again, I like what we read there in verse 22. It says, for many fell dead. Why? Because the war, the war was God's. It's not our war. It's his war. And that demon that's coming against you, you can't handle him. I can't handle him. But do you think God can? God can handle him. That financial hardship that you're having and the numbers are just not adding up and you don't know what's going to happen, you know, we can't, we can't afford it, but, but God can. And that physical calamity that hits you and maybe your friend and you're wondering, man, uh, you know, nothing we can do. Well, there is nothing we can do, but there is something that God can do. God can handle it. You see? And so we give it to him. And if it's God's will that that person doesn't get healed, it's, it's okay. Because let me tell you, man, it, it, the Lord knows what's best. And if that person got healed, they would fall out of the will of God. And so all we want is we want his will. We can trust him. His timing is impeccable. You know, and when you read the Old Testament, of course we know it's filled with New Testament truths. And right here, this... Hagrite, these Ishmaelites, they're a picture of the flesh. And what God is trying to teach us is how to win the war against yourself. How to win the war against me. I don't know about you, but that's what I want the most. I want to be a godly man, so I need to try and I need to cry and I need to pray and I need to obey. And along the way, every day, I got to know that trust is a must. God can really change me. God can really change you. Because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the Bible also says that without him, John 15, verse 5, I can do nothing. 
But we can do this. God can do a great work. I like that scripture in 1 Timothy 4, verse 15. It says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. We should be making progress. We should be growing. You've been a Christian for 20 years and you're still a doubting Thomas? God says, no, I want you to grow. In verses 23 through 26, we have the family of Manasseh East. And again, if we have that map, maybe we can show it again. And there you see Manasseh East. Um, and it's, again, on the wrong side, I believe, of the Jordan. Even though God gave them permission to be there, I believe it was his permissive will. And uh, what we find in this tribe right here, look at verse uh, 20, 25. It says, and they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers. And they played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hela, Habor, Hara, and the river of Gozan even to this day. You know, and, it, and it's sad. What do you read here, you guys? You read their defeat. You read that those uh, three tribes right there, they were the first ones to be taken away into captivity. And uh, when you study the Assyrians, these guys were brutal. They would go and they would cut off an arm. They'd pull out an eye. They, they actually decapitated all the leaders and they would, uh, they would impale their bodies and they put pyramids of people's heads uh, they would put a hook in your jaw, and they would and they would carry you away. Okay, unnecessary. At one time, we saw that they were people of victory. Then what had happened? They drifted away from God. They no longer had that fellowship, that walk with God. They were unfaithful to God, and so God carried them away. Proverbs eleven verse three. It says, "The integrity of the upright will guide them." but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. So we need to be a people of integrity, right? Not a people of unfaithfulness that will destroy us. And that's all that God is asking of us is that we be faithful. What happened was Manasseh, they fell in love with the gods of the people of the land. And so notice again there, you guys, in verse 26, it was God. It was God the one who stirred up the spirit of the king of Assyria. It was God who decided to chasten even his chosen, and God will do that with us. Do you have that fear in your life? I mean, the fear of God is good if it's a healthy fear. I mean, you shouldn't go over to the other side where you think every time you make a mistake, God's going to give you a trangasso, right? Every single time. But do you have that healthy fear in your, in your heart where you're like, man... If I continue in this, if I just eyes wide open, presumptuous sin, consistent, resistant sin, then, you know, God's going God's to gonna chasten me. And do you have that? I, I pray that you would. I didn't have that growing up. My parents, uh, they, never, they never, like, disciplined me. And it wasn't, I mean, well, maybe it was their fault, huh? <laughs> They're not here tonight, are they? Okay, don't tell them I told you that. No, you know, because um, we were just, we didn't know the Lord. How many of you here, you grew up in a home where you, you didn't know the Lord? 
And so I remember just being out and about and doing my thing, right? My wife, on the other hand, she grew up with uh, parents who would, you know, they would give her a trancaso. And one time she told me she came home late. That's all it took. You come home late, you just come home late, boom, you get it across the, the face right there, man. And so what does that do? To her, I'm not going to do drugs. To her, I'm not going to get drunk. To her, I'm not going to stay out late anymore. Why? Because there was that healthy fear of being disciplined by her parents. And so again, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's a good thing to have that with the Lord. And that's why the Lord, he, he puts these things here for us. You see, what we find is that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were the first ones to go into captivity. And what ended up happening was, in one sense, when you guys think of that word unfaithful, you know, you think of that, the fact that this is what happened. They fell in love with the world. When they should have been in love with God. They played the harlot. Right? God says, you guys are adulterers. Right? And so what do we need to do? We need to be so careful. I, I pray that you would return to your first love. I pray that that we would just fall in love with God. He's so good. You know, I, I read this, uh, this illustration. I don't know if you guys have heard of this lady, Annie Dillard. She wrote a book. It's called The Writing Life. And she tells of an experiment that was done with butterflies. And the experiment involved placing a male butterfly with a female butterfly of its own species into a cardboard box. But then what they did was they placed a painted cardboard butterfly, okay, a painted one, alongside them. Okay, So you picture the two butterflies are in there, two real butterflies, a boy and a girl. Okay, Then you've got a painted butterfly on the box, and it's a girl. It's a girl butterfly. I don't know how they can tell the difference, but apparently they can, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. It was bigger. It was a bigger girl than the real butterfly that was with the boy butterfly. And so what ended up happening? The experiment said this, that the male ignored the living female butterfly next to him, and he went to the painted cardboard butterfly over and over and over again. It wasn't even real, but he just kept going after it. Dillard adds, nearby the real living female was there, and she was opening and closing her wings. She was doing everything that she could to attract the, the male butterfly to herself. She was the real you know, butterfly that she you know, belonged with. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. And, and that right there is a perfect illustration of what happens. You know, here's God. Here's the love of our life. And he's there, and he's, he's the one that we belong to. He's the one that made us. He's the one that redeemed us. But so many times as we go after those things that aren't even real, we go after these things that will never satisfy us. And they, maybe they're fun for a season, or they feel good, but they're not good. And, that, that, and what happened with Manasseh can so easily happen to us. And God says, come to me. I love you. My love will never change. I will satisfy you, and you will find rest.
for your souls. You'll find purpose for your life. We got to be so careful that we don't fall in love. Notice it right, right here, you know, with the gods of the peoples of the land. No, we have the one God who's the, the true God. My prayer is that we would really, really love the Lord the way that we should. And so in chapter 6, verses 1 through 30, we have the descendants of Levi. And it says in verse 1, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to like, kind of like um, read them just so you guys know that I shouldn't read them. Okay. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The children of Amram were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And the sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you're like, you haven't pronounced any of the names right. I know. Eleazar begot Phinehas, and Phinehas begot Abishua. So anyways, you go through and you read those yourself, all right? And in verses 1 through 30, we have the descendants of Levi. The Babylonian captivity is mentioned in verse 15 right there. It's interesting. Look at verse 15. Jehozadak went into captivity when the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem into captivity by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And so you guys know the northern kingdom was carried away by Assyria and the southern kingdom was carried away by Babylon. Here we read of Jehozadak, and it's interesting because he's mentioned in Haggai five times, and he is the father of the high priest in the book of Haggai. His name is Joshua. This guy right here, uh, Jehozadak, he is the father of Sarahiah and the grandfather of Hilkiah. Uh, they were the high priest. I'm sorry, he's uh, the son of Sarahiah. And Hilkiah was his grandfather, but he himself was never a high priest. And so his dad was, his grandpa was, his son was, but he, he wasn't. And then in verses 31 through 47, we have the musicians in the house of the Lord. And uh, these musicians were from the tribe of Levi. Look what we read in verse 31. It says, now these are the men whom... David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. And these are the ones who ministered with their sons. And then he goes on and he gives a list of a whole bunch of guys that are descendants of Levi that are musicians in the house of the Lord. And it's interesting to me because before he mentions the sacrifices, before he mentions the other elements of service by the priests, he mentions worship. He mentions the music ministry. And what we see that when the Lord just began to work things out and then David, we know, was the sweet psalmist of Israel, according to 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, uh, what we find is that the musicians played such a huge part in the worship of God. And, you know, it's so cool because when you look at this right here, he set it up so that these families were sanctified for song, not just music, 
but music that was meant to purely glorify and praise God. Now look at verse 32 again. It says, They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting. Let me ask you a question. Before whose dwelling place? God's. It was God's dwelling place in the tabernacle. And then later on, it was God's temple. It was God's tabernacle, God's temple, God's holy place. You know, and, and I don't, I just want to let you guys know, remind you, encourage you to know that music and this whole aspect of worshiping God in church is a huge thing. You see, when we sing, we are not performing for you. And you're like, well, yeah, I can tell, right? We don't have the lights and we don't have the, the greatest whatever it might be. But you know what? In our heart, we know what we're doing now. We're worshiping God. And, of course, we're going to do our best and we're going to try to develop those skills. And, you know, God is going to bring more musicians and all that type of stuff. But it's not. It's not a show for men. It's not. It is an act of worship with an audience of one. You see, as you read carefully in your Bible, you're going to find that music and musicians have a powerful place in the people of God. So much so that when we read the responsibility of priests here in Chronicles, you know, they're mentioned first. And that's why I get so blessed when I see the Lord raising up when we got Angel and John and Jane and, and Anthony. And they're, you know, I'm there because it's kind of like a, we're waiting, right? But, you know, I don't want my daughter to play every single time, but God's raising up an army. And I want you musicians to know how important that is. And whatever you do, don't ever say, well, I just play the guitar or I just, you know, play the drums or I just sing once in a while. No, you are, we are leading the people into the worship of God, the dwelling place of God, the, the tabernacle, the temple of God. It's the service of song that is here so important that it's mentioned before even the sacrifices and the other elements of service. It's so important that David, he, man, he organizes and structures this whole thing just to make sure that this is something that happens in God's temple. You know, and I want to encourage you guys to worship. You know, I don't know, I don't want to get legalistic, okay, but maybe I get a little legalistic sometimes, forgive me, you know, but I hear people and they listen to music and um, and for some of you here, well, maybe not, let me see. Maybe, no, I'm just joking. I don't know you guys, you know, but to me it's like, man, whatever you do, I hope you're not listening to music that's that's tearing you up. You know, some of the music out there, I don't even know who's out there nowadays. I'm so bad. I should probably know some things, huh? But whatever you do, do not defile yourself with the music from hell. Don't Don't go there, you know? And then I always, even at the same time, I, I think of music that all people say, well, it's not bad. It's like a neutral message. And, you know, and I have some music like that. And it's been a while since I, I listened to it. But every once in a while, I'll throw on one of those songs, you know, that are neutral. And to me, it's like a waste. It's like, man, you just wasted, you know, five minutes of your life, ten minutes of your life. A lot of times. Now, don't get me wrong. If it's a slow song that I dance with my wife, that's not a waste, okay? <laughs> and there are certain songs that I know are exceptions. 
because they do something to you, you know? But I believe that music was created to praise God. And I really pray that you would really be caught up in that. You guys probably heard of Sebastian Bach, right? Uh, he was uh, Johann Sebastian. He was born in 1685. He died in 1750. I, I love this guy, man, his story. He was born into the musical family of the box, and by the age of 10, both of his parents were dead. Think about that, by the age of 10. You know, if that happened to me, I but man, I'd probably give up. But early in his life, he determined that what he would do in response to what had happened to him is he would write music for the glory of God. And this is exactly what he did. You know, most of his works are explicitly biblical. One man referred to him as the fifth evangelist, thus comparing him to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At the age of 17, Bach became the organist at the church, and then he was given charge of the entire music ministry. During his uh, time in Germany, he wrote a new cantata, I guess it's a song, a cantata, Every month, every month, he wrote a song. During one three-year period, he wrote, conducted, orchestrated, and performed with his choir a new cantata every week. I mean, this guy was just really just bringing out the songs, right? At the beginning of every authentic manuscript of his music, this is so cool. This is what I really wanted to just point out. You'll find the letters J, J in the beginning, and what that stands for is Hesu Hava, which means Jesus, help me. So before he's writing music, before he's doing music, there's a prayer, Jesus, help me, right? And then if you look at his manuscripts, anything that's an original, you'll find at the end of them the letters S-D-G, which are what? It's literally... Soli Deo Gloria, and what that means is to the glory of God. See, and that's what music should be. That's what music ministry should be. Jesus, help me. Jesus, this is for your glory. You know, it's a reminder to us, you guys, that even though we go through the hard times, losing your parents at the age of 10, you know, where would we go from there where we run to God? And we write songs and we worship him because the Bible says that whoever loses his life will save it. And that's exactly what this man did. You know, when you look at this right here, verse 48, we read uh, of other kinds of service. Look at verse 48. And their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. And I like that, you guys. Every kind of service. What does that mean? That means I'm one, I'll do anything. And you need somebody to pick up papers, I'll do it for you. I can probably do that, right? You need somebody to scrub toilets, I'll do it for you. You need somebody to help truth and treat, I'll do it for you, right? And that's a plug right there. I think we should all be involved in that, you know? Because I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, I have spoken to people that they, they won't do anything for God. Now, I'm not saying that you don't know your gifts and you don't go where you belong, but there are those times where we need to step up and say, hey, there's some help needed in the nursery. 
I'll volunteer even though that's not my gift. <laughs> you know, I'll do that. I've talked to guys who told me I'm not going to be an usher. I've already been an usher. I used to oversee the ushers. I'm not going to be an usher anymore. And I, to that person, I say, you know what? We don't want you to be an usher. What we want, what we need to have is hearts that says, I'll do anything for God. I'll vacuum. I've heard guys even say that. One guy, he quit his job because he was a pastor, and part of being a pastor was cleaning. He didn't like it. And so he quit his job. I'm glad that he quit his job because part of being a pastor is scrubbing toilets and vacuuming and cleaning and doing everything. You need somebody to go, you know, you know I don't know, give rides and you know, get gas and you go to Sam's Club and then you teach the Bible and then you do a funeral. And <laughs> I mean, it's just whatever. And I like that in verse 48. There, there are some Levites, they're appointed to every kind of service. And then we read in verse 49 about Aaron and his sons and they offered sacrifices on the altar. Notice of burnt offering and the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. You know, you guys, and I, I think you, you would probably do anything for the Lord, huh? We called you to do it. If it is him, you'll do it, right? The Bible says in Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so here in chapter 6, verse 49 through 53, we have the family of Aaron. And then in verses 54 through 81, we have the dwelling place for the Levites. And so if you remember, the Levites weren't allowed to own land. The Lord was their inheritance. And so they were given land to be able to you know, rent or to be there and just to grow certain things in the common lands. But it didn't belong to them. In chapter 7, we have uh, the tribe of Issachar, and that's where it begins. And look at verse 2. The latter portion of verse 2, it says, The sons of Tola were mighty men of valor in their generation. We read that over and over again. If you guys go through this right here, verse 4, And with them by their generations, according to their fathers' houses, were 36,000 troops ready for war. For they had many wives and sons. Now their brethren among all the families of Issachar were mighty men of valor. Listed by their genealogies, 87,000 in all. And you know, we're not sure, but there is a possibility that these figures were actually uh, produced when David numbered the people. There's a possibility of that. Uh, all I know is that when you go through First Chronicles, 13 times in the book, you're going to read about mighty men of valor. Seven times in Second Chronicles, mighty men of valor. So that's 20 times in First and Second Chronicles, and then 27 times in the whole Bible. So the bulk of the mighty men of valor is mentioned in these priestly letters of First and Second Chronicles. And so what is a mighty man of valor? It's a man of heroic courage. And God is saying, that's what I want I want you to be. Now, I was tripping out. We're, we're going to finish up real quick, you guys. Don't worry. Uh, verse 13, okay? In verse 13, it says, The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalom, the sons of Bilhah. That's it, on the tribe of Naphtali. I felt sorry for them. That's, 
this one verse, man. And then in verses 14 through 19, we have the tribe of Manasseh on the west side. And if you read verses 21 through 23, you see that they went through some hard times when their children were killed in a tragedy. And so little things tucked away in genealogies that can actually minister to people who maybe have gone through some similar things. You know, in verses 30 through 40, we have the family of Asher. And look at verse 40, if you would. It says, all these were the children of Asher, heads of their father's houses, choice men, mighty men of valor, chief leaders, and they were recorded by genealogies among the army, fit for battle. Their number was 26,000. And so you have the different tribes. Next week, Joshua is going to be here, our missionary from Cambodia. So make sure you come out and you uh, support him and pray for him. And then, Lord willing, the week after, we're going to go in First Chronicles 8, and then we're going to finally get into where he begins to talk about Saul and then the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. But what I wanted to do real quick, you guys, was close over in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. And we don't have time to read this whole section, but I just want to touch on a couple of verses here. I don't know if you know the background to Galatians, but Galatians is a book where um, Paul is writing to this church that is turning away from Jesus. They're turning away from Jesus, but they're not turning away from Jesus so that they can, you know, go and have sex with uh, prostitutes. They're not turning away from Jesus uh, because they're looking at pornography or or getting high or getting drunk. You know, they're not turning away from Jesus because. You know, they're out with the boys and, you know, they're getting caught up in the, the money and materialism and things like that. You know, you want to know what they're doing? They're turning away from Jesus and they're turning to religion. They're turning to religion. They're turning to a relationship that is very performance oriented. It's not a walk by faith anymore. It's a walk by ceremony. It, they were saying, hey, you guys, in order for you to really, you know, get saved and stay saved and just enter into the fullness of life as a Christian, you got to get circumcised. And what ended up happening was Paul wrote to them and, uh, and, he, and he fought vigorously against that. He says, no, that's not going to get you anywhere. Because I'll be honest with you, that's my problem. You know, my problem, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not susceptible to the other things, but I think what can take away my joy, what can take away my victory, my victory at home with my family or my kids or my wife or whatever, is that, that religion part of it. You know, why did God choose Paul? God chose Paul because of two things. Number one, he was the most religious man. And number two, he was the most rebellious man. I mean, there was nobody more religious than Paul, and there was no one more rebellious than Paul. He was killing Christians. He was taking men and women and children, and he was slaughtering them if they were Christians. So he was very rebellious.
but he was also very religious. And what ended up happening was they were, you know, fighting this flesh. And I think it was an act of the flesh. And Paul is telling him circumcision is not of the flesh. It's of the spirit. If you really want to win this victory over me, this is what you need to do. Over in Galatians chapter 5, look what he says. He says, stand that fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In chapter 4, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about Ishmael. The descendants of Ishmael. We were talking about it earlier, the Hagrites. It's all about religion. It's all about the flesh. If you go over to Galatians chapter 1, and this will be the last verse, I promise. Well, I, I kind of promise. Look at verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from who? Him. What's your, what's, you're like, well, what's your problem? We're turning away from him. See? And what do we need to do? Well, we need to turn back to him. We need to pray. We need to cry. We need to trust in Jesus. Martin Luther said, No other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. You know, my prayer, you guys, tonight as we go home, as we end the, the, the service, is that you would return. You would turn to Jesus himself. Because whatever it is that you're going through, and I know for sure that you're going through things, I just know you are. And I'll be honest with you, I am too. I'm going through things right now. And I, I just know that the only way out is, is really just doing this. you got to turn back to Jesus. you got to come to Jesus. Him you got to return to him, not, not religion, not superficial church, not plain church, not going through the motions. Well, I prayed, you know, for my food. No, praying, crying, trusting him. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to come out of the pit that we're in. A.T. Pearson, he tells a story about a new convert to Christ. And apparently this new convert had a dream. And this was the dream. It says he was trapped down in a very deep well in the night. He said he looked up and he saw a single star shining far above him. And it seemed to let down like lines of silver light that took hold of him and lifted him up. But then he looked down and he began to go down. He looked up, and he began to go up. He looked down, and he began to go down again. He found that by simply keeping his eye on the star, he rose up out of the well until finally his feet stood firm on the firm ground. And so... A.T. Pearson explained to him, I, I know what your dream means. He says, this is what you need to do. You need to get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off your circumstances, and fix your eyes on your Savior. Get your eyes off your disease and get your eyes off your 
physical things and turn your eyes to the Lord, your Savior. I like what Hudson Taylor said, and this is just goes hand in hand. I don't know if you guys can visualize this. He said, Satan, the hinderer, may build a barrier on our sides, but he can never roof us in so that we cannot look up and rise up. Can you visualize that? Satan can do stuff all around you. He might even put something underneath you, but he cannot cap you in. He cannot put something above you. So what do you need to do? You need to look up. And as you look up and stop looking down, okay, <laughs> you look up and you got your eyes on the Lord and just on the Lord. Get your eyes off any man. Get your eyes off any woman. Get your eyes off all those circumstances and all those problems, even the hurdles that you've cleared. You get your eyes off all of that and you fix your eyes on Christ. He says, then you kind of rise up, and then boom, there you are once again. You're firm on the firm ground. Sometimes when I go to the mall, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but you never see, you go to the mall, and you see the mirrors in the mall. So you're walking by the mirror, right? And you're kind of tempted to look at yourself. You guys ever do that? <laughs> I, I, always, I always say, don't look at yourself. I always say that because what if somebody sees you looking at yourself, right, or something like that, you know? How vain can you be, you know? And I, and I think we just got to do the same thing. Stop looking at yourself so much. And then sometimes when you go to the mall, here's another thing, right, guys? You hear the high heels or whatever. You see the silhouette, right? And you just know, I bet you, you know, there's like a pretty girl over there. What do you tell yourself? Guys, not going to look. Not going to look, right? You got your eyes, unless you want your wife to beat you up or something, or you want God to get you, right? And I, and I was just thinking about that. That's kind of how it is in life. You, know, you get the silhouette, the temptation to look that way, that way, or to look in that mirror when you're passing by, get your eyes on yourself. And God just says, no, 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 that's not how you do it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, looking, fixing your eyes on who? On Jesus. On Jesus. Are your eyes on Jesus? Really? If not, I pray that today, boom, they'd be back where they belong. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us uh, another day, Lord, of life. And Lord, I pray that you would just bless your beautiful people here. Lord, I ask that you would uh, give us the wisdom, Lord, to be able to take these principles that we find uh, tucked away, even within the genealogies where we have theology, things that I know are so important to pray and to cry and to trust, and, and Lord, to, to make sure that we are a people that would stay faithful, not love the world or the, or the things of the world, but to love you, and Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you or maybe some that have drifted away because they've taken their eyes off of Jesus, then today, Lord, that they would return. That they would return to you, that our eyes would be right where they belong. Bless your people, Lord. 
I pray that today, I'm just asking a prayer that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You'd baptize us, empty us of ourselves, and protect your people. God, do a, a mighty work, Lord. I pray and I ask all these things in Jesus' name. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.